News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. These days, if you ask someone about pirates, they probably think of this, right? They think of Captain Jack Sparrow or something to do with Pirates of the Caribbean. But pirates have a long history. And you know what? They weren't all men either. In fact, one of the most successful pirates of all time had a fleet 60 times larger than Blackbeard's and was a woman. So why haven't we learned about this before? Well, Laura Duncombe wondered the same thing. She is the author of Pirate Women, the Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas. And Laura is with us now. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Laura, first of all, great title for your book. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) How did you get inspired to write about this? You know, I have always loved pirates ever since I was a little girl. I was really into uh, Peter Pan, and I thought even in Neverland where no one grows up, the pirates have the most fun. And so um, I just kind of loved them my whole life. And then as a teenager, I thought, you know, there's women doctors, women lawyers. There's got to be women pirates, right? And then I started doing research, and I realized there were women pirates. They're everywhere since the dawn of time, but nobody ever... Uh, wrote about them. So I got so mad, I decided I had to write about them. (laughs) Well, good job. So tell us about some of these very, at the time, I would imagine, very well-known female pirates. Yeah, well, you know, there's Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who, if if you've heard of a woman pirate, you've heard of them. They sailed during the golden age of pirates. You know, they were um, sort of colleagues um, of Blackbeard and, you know, any uh, the the sort of uh, Jack Sparrow era of piracy, if you will. But then there was also Grace O'Malley, who was an Irish pirate, who um, sailed, um, actually had a meeting with Qu- Queen Elizabeth uh, I and uh, was able to ne- uh, do a hostage negotiation to get her son back from Queen Elizabeth against all of the advice of um, Elizabeth's advisors. So, you know, uh, you think when you think of fierce queens, you, uh, you think of Queen Elizabeth I of England, but um, Grace O'Malley went toe-to-toe with her, and she won. So she's a pretty amazing pirate. I, I love her. And then... Um, there's Saeed Al-Hura, who was a Muslim pirate queen in the um, late 1400s in Morocco. And then there is, of course, the pirate you mentioned in your intro, Chang'e Sao, who was a Chinese pirate in the early 1800s, who was all, you know, hands down, no questions asked, the most successful pirate who ever lived. How? <laughs> yeah, she, um, so she started her life um, working on a, a flower boat in Canton, and then she married a small-time pirate, um, Cheng Yi, you know, the, the, the irony of the whole thing is that we don't even know her name. Cheng Yi Sao is just translated, you know, wife of Cheng Yi, basically Mrs. Cheng, you know. Um, so we don't even know uh, what her first name was. But um, she married Cheng Yi, who was a small-time pirate, and they started building a confederation. They realized, you know, one pirate ship's pretty great, but, you know, two pirate ships is twice as good. And when you've got, you know, 12, well, now you're cooking. So, um, you know, they, they were in the process of building a fleet when Chang Yi died, and uh, she decided to take over the fleet. And that was not entirely uncommon in, you know, in this time and area of the world when men died, women would kind of take over essentially the family business. But um, the magnitude of their pirate operation um, made it really unique, and then she immediately grew it. She had um, fleets. Of ships, she had you know the red flag fleet, the green flag fleet, the black flag fleet, and um, you know at the height of her powers, twelve hundred ships under her command and forty wow. to sixty thousand pirates. Okay, well then, Laura, how have we not heard of her? Legitimate navies at the time. Yeah, you know, it, I, it's it's really 
hard for me to understand why. Um, you know, I think for, for, you know, since history started being recorded, history was recorded by men. And, you know, men usually write what they know. We know about her at all is through the efforts of a scholar named Diane Murray, who went to China. She speaks Chinese. I do not speak Chinese. <laughs> and um, she translated some of the documents and brought, you know, brought Chingy Sao to the West. Um, and it's through her efforts that we even know about her at all. But I mean, I, I'm, I am like a, a proselytizer, you know, I will shout from the rooftops <laughs> every time I talk about it. People are like, man, she should have her own Hollywood movie. And well, I think, yeah. yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> she absolutely should have her own Hollywood movie. How hard was it for you to find out this information? Like, where did you have to dig for this? Um, I did a lot of research at the national archives in DC. I was living in DC um, at the time I was writing the book and, um, I also, you know, I did, I traveled to the Caribbean um, and I did some phone interviews with people. You know, it's a myth that pirates bury their treasure. This is, you know, pirates spent their treasure as as fast as they had it, sometimes even sooner. Um, So there is no buried treasure. But I always say that the buried treasure is the stories of these pirates because, you know, by very nature, they're not law abiding. You know, they don't like file their tax returns. They don't, you know, publish their marriages in uh, the newspapers. They're kind of being outside the law is their whole thing. So their history is not very well recorded. A lot of it was passed down in stories and songs um, and, and legends. And so it's, um, it was orally passed down for a long time. So, um, you know, when you go on vacation to the Caribbean and you see like a dusty book in a gift shop and you're like, who would ever buy a book, you know, in like Jamaica, like, that's me. I was the one buying those books. <laughs> <laughs> See, so, when people yeah, think of totally. pirates, though, they th- I think they do think of the Caribbean and, and everything that went on there, obviously, because that's what Hollywood has popularized. Mm-hmm. But were there women in, in that part of piracy as well? Yeah, there were definitely women in that time. Um, two of the most famous pirates, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, um, were actually on the same ship. They, they sailed with a pirate named um, Calico Jack Rackham. Um, and we know so much about them because they were caught and tried in um, 1720, and um, they um, their trial uh, transcript was recorded. So we have testimony from people who were captured by them who said, you know, that these women were just as fierce as the men, and, you know, that they did everything the men did, and, you know, the judges did everything they could to sort of bend over backwards to get these women off and say, you know, Maybe they were innocent. Maybe they were kidnapped themselves. Maybe they didn't want to be pirates because they just couldn't believe that these women were these fearsome pirates. But then the testimony of the captives said, no, absolutely not. They are just, you know, they're every inch a pirate as as the men. And in fact, the women said we should kill these hostages because if we ever get caught, they will testify against us. So, I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. I, I wonder if that also played into why we don't know about them as well. If they're, even after they were gone, there was still that belief of, oh, that, that can't be right. Though They couldn't have been pirates. I think there's, a, there's absolutely, that's a very uh, keen observation. There is sort of this myth about the, the sea. You know, we, whenever people talk about the ocean, they, they've used feminine pronouns. You know, it's the sea and, you know, they say women are wild and unchanging as the sea. Like the sea is this very feminine thing. And so, the conquerors of the sea are, are always viewed as masculine. You know, we talk about discovering virgin lands and conquering virgin territories. You know, it's all this very highly coded sexual gendered language. And so it just doesn't make sense to like put women into that equation. It really kind of blows the whole thing wide open. And so I think people are reluctant to do that. I think that's one of the reasons that so many women pirates went undetected for so long 
because people see what they expect to see. You know, it's easier to believe that that shy pirate who's, you know, sort of skinny and keeps to himself is a young man than a girl disguised as a young man. You know, so I, I mean, women just get left out of the story because our entire mythology about the ocean make you know doesn't make sense with women in it but really we've been telling the story wrong for so long and that's why i wrote this book and the sequel pirates life for she um to really just sort of right the wrong because when you leave women out of the story you're you're only telling half of the story i love that a pirate's life for she is that what the sequel's called yes that's yeah that's that's the second book that's um uh that's that's primarily for school age uh readers but it's a it's a I love it. Yeah, my, my second book. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Listen, Laura, thanks for, talk, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Laura Duncombe. Laura's written a couple books. The first one's called Pirate Women, the Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas. And it's all about famous, well, at the time, famous uh, female pirates who have perhaps been forgotten to history, but really should not be. I mean, if we know Blackbeard and all the other pirates, even the fictional ones like Jack Sparrow, then you should definitely know about some of these famous pirates too. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm on this Friday morning for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, I'd like to start by talking about wildfires, if we could, because I wanted to get your thoughts on the story that was in the news as well about this national, this proposal, this idea of a national wildfire fighting service. What a marvelously well-intentioned and incredibly stupid Canadian idea that is, <laughs> Simi. <laughs> oh, well, tell us, Vaughn, why do you think that? Well, let's start. First of all, you're going to create a national firefighting service to fly over the top of all the existing provincial ones. Don't get the idea in your head that British Columbia, which has an enormous, very well-funded service that could use some help but is very big, BC's not going to shut down its, so you'll just have two services here in BC. Quebec, of course, will never agree to be part of a national force, they will insist on a Quebec force, federally funded, by the way. So you'll get jurisdictional squabbles from one end of the country to the other. You'll have a headquarters in Ottawa, mind you, which doesn't have forest fires, but which is where Ottawa, the federal government, puts its agencies. I just see it, as I say, a recipe for jurisdictional squabbling and funding. Well, it would be very nice if Ottawa would put more money into training and staffing firefighting in the country. But the federal government doesn't do that. They want credit. They want to put the money out there, semi, on a per capita basis. Look what happens on housing. They don't put their housing dollars in the provinces where they send the most immigrants. They do it per capita across the country. So I just think, as I said, it's a typically well-intentioned Canadian idea and would be enormous waste of money uh, and it wouldn't, in the long run, help in the least. I agree with you 100% on that one. Now, this came up yesterday because there was a briefing as well about, you know, the drought situation, the wildfire situation, the temperatures getting warm uh, next week, and the government is kind of doing the all-hands-on-deck thing. Yes. So, you know, uh, BC did not rise to the occasion when we had a heat dome two years ago. We really never had had anything like it. And as a result, you know, the government's initial response, Premier John Horgan's initial response was dismissive. And the result, we had coroner's report that indicated more than 600 people 
died. So that's the low point in our reaction. We got a good briefing yesterday from Forests, Public Health, and Emergency Services saying we need to be prepared, be aware of all the things you need to know. That's good. And they said, look, it isn't expected to be as bad as it was two years ago. So that's all to the good. I think we've had a couple of indications that in spite of the British Columbia government collectively having ridden to the occasion and learned some lessons from last time, um, there's still some problems out there. Uh, there's a good piece in the Vancouver Sun today by my colleague Katie DeRosa pointing out that you know, they promised in June eight thousand air conditioners for the needy. Well, so far, BC Hydro has only actually delivered 360 of them, which is well short semi of what is needed. And the latest heat wave is here. And so what is going on with that? I know there's a story in the sun about this today, right? Yeah, look, I mean, well, first of all, is BC Hydro's in charge. You have to apply. They have an administrative target of a thousand a month out the door. Um, the other problem identified in the story today is landlords are very reluctant to just sign off, which they have to do, on having one of these free air conditioners delivered to a tenant. And the reason for that is because, of course, if you got an air conditioner, it drives up the utility bill and landlords are bound by provincial regulation for low income and affordable housing not to raise the rent. So the landlords are going to have to eat the cost, uh, not of the air conditioner, it's free, but of the electricity drain. And so it's been difficult to get a lot of landlords to sign off on it. And it's bureaucratic. You can understand the reasons for it. But it's also, Simi, all too often the kind of announcement we see from this government. Grand plan back in June, 8,000 air conditioners. We're going to look after people. And a couple of months later, they've delivered 360 of them. And that's becoming a familiar theme with this government, I have to say. Uh, whether you're talking about healthcare waiting, public safety, housing affordability, they are very good with the press conferences, the news conferences, and the validation at the front end, much less effective at delivery. They have not yet mastered the under-promise over-deliver, have they? It's the opposite. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's not a bad... Now, you know, when you get lots of coverage at the front end and everybody's saying this is a great idea, you can see why they do it that way. But I think it's starting to accumulate that... People don't remember the promise of the 8,000 air conditioners. What they go is 360. That's not even a very good start on what you needed to do. More for us to talk about, including one of the people that we heard from yesterday during that emergency kind of management discussion with the provincial government, Vaughn, was Dr. Bonnie Henry. Yes, Dr. Bonnie Henry was there yesterday talking about preparedness for dealing with the heat wave. And she says the healthcare system is in better shape, more prepared then last time, that's encouraging, although being worse prepared, probably not an option. Um, uh, the interesting thing I thought was that it was the first time we've heard Dr. Henry on this issue that cropped up last month. And that's where a group of Canadian medical researchers did a big series of articles in the British Medical Journal and essentially said, you know, 53,000 Canadians died 
during the pandemic, and we need a public inquiry into what happened and what we can learn from it. The researchers pointed out that, you know, Canada did better than the UK and the US. We know that. They said that's still an awful lot of people to have died, and it's a good reason to have a national inquiry into lessons learned, what we can do better when the next one comes, because this is probably not the last time we'll be talking about a pandemic here in this country. So that idea has been out there for a while. A question went to Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. What does she think about British Columbia playing part in that? She is careful what she said, Simi. She said, first of all, we do need to learn what lessons we can and review our performance. So she agrees with that. She was involved in that on SARS uh, some years ago, so she knows that. Uh, But she said she doesn't have an opinion on a national inquiry. She said there are pros and cons of doing that. I have to say I think she has a point. You can see why there'd be people saying we got to have this, but a public inquiry... You can see what the cons would be as well, I think. I'm a little, I guess, surprised that not one province, like, do you know of any jurisdiction that has done this? Uh, I think from what I've seen, Simi, it's, there are internal reviews in the healthcare systems across the country. Health is another one of these jurisdictional issues. Uh, Provinces did things differently and they're reviewing for lessons learned, and there may be even public reports on that. I haven't seen an awful lot of take-up yet on the idea of a national public inquiry. And I think Andre Picard of the Globe and Mail, a great health reporter there, expressed it well a while ago when he said, yes, you can see why we need that, but it's also clear, Simi, that it could turn into a political football. So... um, it could be you could have a whole long parade of anti-vaxxers going through. You could have the kind of disputes we've had here in BC over masking and how the schools were managed. You could have debates on lockdowns, and <clears throat> all of that is important to sort through. But I think the great concern is that a public inquiry, and I think it's a legitimate concern. Public inquiry could turn into a series of political footballs and maybe generate far more heat than it does light. Interesting. So maybe with a change of government, but you're right, it does dredge up an awful lot that I think a lot of people would just like to forget about it and move on. Well, you know, that's a good point, too. And our current problem that we talked about this week, where there's a new variant of COVID out there and the fall is coming and... You know, there's legitimate concerns being raised about safety in the schools and so forth. Dr. Henry was asked about that this week as well. And she said she thinks the people that are raising concerns about the schools and about the new variant and all that have are raising important issues. Uh, Health Canada is reviewing uh, updated vaccines for the fall, and hopefully those will be approved. And she said there's issues in the schools over air quality and all of that. So and masking and all that. So she, you know, uh, the B.C. government and public health in the province is engaged. I think it can rightly say that British Columbia's record on this issue is better than most. 
But I think, you know, you could also say there were some mistakes made and some things we would probably do differently if we had it to do over again. So if a public inquiry is maybe not the right way to go for that, and and I hate to say it because I I know a public inquiry, first of all, it's public and I'm in the business of spreading information to the public. But I think we'd also have to say, Simi, that there's so much deep political division around this issue and misinformation and thinking particularly of the anti-vaxxers, who I still hear from on a regular basis. I'm sure you do as well. I do. Um, that, you know, I, I again, I as I said, I hate to come out and say, well, you know, I have my doubts about a public inquiry, but we had a public inquiry into money laundering here in British Columbia. It was very expensive. It cost $40 million. And I don't think it changed anything very much. And I don't think it delivered the goods that even the people who wanted a public inquiry wanted. So, um, you know, they're a very blunt, messy instrument. And I don't know if that's the right way to go on an issue as complicated and as related to fundamental public health issues um, as the COVID pandemic. Good point. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun making great points as always. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's catch up on the stories from the United States this week. It's been a busy one. So Reggie Giacchini is with us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Let's start with what we see unfolding uh, in Hawaii, because obviously there's a huge demand for help from the mainland. Is that help going to get there? Uh, The help is going to try to get there. We know that the federal government has unlocked as many resources as it can uh, to ensure that the people uh, of Maui impacted there are going to get what they need. Uh, We know that FEMA has been dispatched by the president, and that is going to unlock financial assistance for those who have found themselves displaced or for those uh, who are going to need to rebuild. This is according to uh, local officials on the island and federal officials here in D.C., an all-hands-on-deck situation to deal with what has been an unprecedented fire season, fire situation throughout the island. And it's worth kind of pointing out here, Simi, that from the ecologist that I, that I spoke with in the last couple of days here, across North America, it's obviously been a bad uh, forest fire season. But in Maui, they don't have the same kind of landscape. It's not a burn, regrowth, burn, regrowth situation. It's a burn and nothing regrows. And there is a general fear here that what's been wiped out, especially through Lahaina, may simply just never come back. Uh, and that is so devastating for people who visited, especially here on the West Coast. It's very common for people to go there. Uh, so will there be like National Guard arriving? Will there be like that's going to take, I guess, a couple of days to get there? Yeah. So National Guard has been dispatched already. That is activated by the governor. It's the it's the rest of the, the federal response that's going to take time. The Department of the Interior, the Agriculture uh, Department is going to be assisting. Department of Transportation is still working with the airlines to ensure that people can get out. We know that uh, uh, 15,000 visitors visitors left Maui on Thursday 11,000 people left Maui on Wednesday but as these people leave we have to remember that there are so many people tens of thousands left behind because this is where they live they may not have anywhere else to go this is why there is such a surge here of assistance from around the island chain and from the mainland parts of the United States to ensure that they can do what they can the death toll here rising it's above 50 and we're hearing these horrific stories of people that tried to jump into the ocean to escape Escape flames and and there are just corpses now floating around. This this is really is a it's a heartbreaking and devastating story. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get updates on that as well coming up later in the show. But we'll talk about uh, what else you were covering this week here.
here, uh, Reggie, and I know there's more special counsel news. Uh, yes, there's a couple of bits of special counsel news. Number one, uh, there's a court hearing underway right now, just about a block away from me, to deal with a protective order request by the special counsel on former President Donald Trump. The Justice Department ultimately saying, look, Trump needs to not be given certain information uh, from evidence that's in discovery right now because there's a fear he's going to use this, speak about it publicly, and possibly interfere uh, with any kind of witnesses. His defense team says this is a First Amendment kind of trample here and his free speech uh, is being is being kind of walked on. Ultimately, we need to see how the judge is going to to uh, rule in this hearing. We should get that within the next couple of hours. At the same time, special counsel has said, look, here's our information, the, the evidence that we have coming forward. We want this trial to start on January 2nd, just a couple of months from now. Trump's team obviously has another week to figure this out. We will get a trial date on August 28th. January is quick, but the government feels that its case is ready to go and that it's in the public's best interest to get this going quickly. I mean, January of an election of a presidential election year, Reggie, like that's just going to become a circus. Well, I mean, look, it's January of a presidential election year, and it would be one of five or six trials that are going to be competing with the campaign calendar. And if it goes in January, that's only a couple of days, if not maybe a week before the first caucuses in Iowa and the other court cases that are on the docket would pick up right around kind of Super Tuesday in primary season. So this is going to be difficult for the leading contender of the Republican Party uh, to be on the campaign trail while he's expected to be in court in any number of these court cases that are expected to come forward, including one that could come from Georgia with indictments possible just next week. Okay, so there's that. What is the Georgia one? Uh, the Georgia is the uh, state level investigation into Trump and Trump allies attempts to overturn the 2020 election. The district attorney there, Fonnie Willis, has said that they're ready to go. And this indictment, it could be as many as 12 indictments, could be handed down Monday or Tuesday of next week or Thursday or Friday of next week. And actually, I spoke to a legal professor uh, uh, just a couple of days ago in Georgia. If Trump is to be convicted on anything federally, Simi, he, and he wins the presidential uh, race, he could pardon himself. If he's convicted in Georgia, he can't pardon himself because you can't pardon yourself from a state-level crime if you're the president. But the Georgia governor also isn't allowed to pardon somebody. It would be up to a pardoning board, and the pardoning board can only pardon you after five years. So Georgia could be a real problem here legally for the former president. Okay, that is really interesting. Um, Another thing I wanted to ask you about was the fact that there's all these social media stars who seem to be creating chaos right now, uh, and all because they they do something in public and they encourage their followers to show up. And it it happened in New York City, too. It it did. And I mean, the the crowds in and around Union Square, uh, downtown-ish Manhattan last week, they were huge. There were throngs of them. It looked looked like a riot. There were people jumping on cars, uh, and it was all for this this social media star who said he was going to be giving away PlayStation Five consoles and gift cards, and it brought out thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, and and he's now facing a number of charges for inciting this kind of a crowd. Uh, he's taking a step back from uh, his you know social media duties because he said he has so many court dates that are coming up here. It really led to a pushback on Republicans who say, look at these Democratic cities and how they're run, and this is a problem with, with the young people these days. At the end of the day here, this could be a wake-up call for, for some social media influencers just to say, maybe we need to step back. You know, We, we can create a bit of panic when they think ultimately they're trying to do something good. Oh, Reggie, that really feels like wishful thinking on your part. <laughs> oh, well, you got to try. <laughs> I don't see that happening at all. Listen, thank you so much for those updates today. Thank you. That's Reggie Chikiti, our Global News Washington correspondent. You know, so many other stories, too, that we always don't have a chance to get through the whole list there with Reggie, but clearly... 
especially when it comes to the social media situation. I know we're dealing with one of those right here uh, as well in Metro Vancouver. You wonder, well, what the heck is going on here? Is it like a desperate cry for attention? Is that why they do it? Who knows? Who knows? This is Mornings with Simi. We know there are lots of challenges when it comes to shipbuilding, especially in our province. And it's been very noteworthy here in BC because we have a long list of ships that we need to be built, especially when it comes to BC ferries. So can we do it better? Is there new technology that we can use that could help with this? Well, it turns out there might be, yeah. In fact, researchers at the University of New Brunswick are working on a solution. They're using advanced 3D printing to change how ships are fixed, essentially, when they need repairs, and how they are built. Their idea is to have ships create their own spare parts as needed with 3D printing. Kind of revolutionary, right? Our producer Bianca Rego had a chance to speak with Dr. Mohsen Mamadi, who's a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of New Brunswick and Canada Research Chair in Marine Additive Manufacturing to find out more about this. So how does this technology work? Like how can a 3D printer make ship parts? So why don't we step back and we look at the conventional ways of manufacturing things and let's get one method which is the closest to this 3D printing method. And that method is casting. Human beings, they have been doing casting for a very long time. We have been doing this maybe for thousands of years. We melt metal in different shapes. It can be anything. Then we have a mold. We have a dye. We then pour a very hot molten metal of copper, steel, aluminum, into a mold, and then that mold is going to be all manufactured to the final shape. That's casting. Now, instead of the casting, what if we actually slice that casting into thousands of layers? Those thousands of layers, let's lay powder metal there, and let's fuse on the geometry wherever we need to fuse it, and then the part will be manufactured. And then when they solidify, they get to the final shape that we actually prefer. Wow. So how is this different from how ship parts are traditionally made? Right now, we use all kinds of conventional manufacturing methods, including forging, casting, machining, extrusion, to make different parts of a ship. What we are saying is, why don't we add a new manufacturing technique to our arsenal of manufacturing technologies? And that is metal 3D printing. We are not replacing the conventional methods. No, no, no. We are saying, let's think about manufacturing them using this method along with conventional methods. So how would this improve the traditional methods of ship maintenance? Sometimes we need to wait to get one part from overseas to manufacture or maintain our ships for more than 60 weeks. Wow. Imagine our ships cannot be operational because their specific part is coming from another country and we do not have any control on them. And imagine what can happen, how this can disrupt our shipping industry. And we are a shipping country. So what we are saying is this. Why don't we 
have one metal 3D printer on board of a ship. What if we have one of these ships equipped with one of these metal 3D printers? So that when the ship is in very isolated areas of our vast oceans, or they are not very close to Vancouver or Newfoundland or Halifax to get the repair. They are really off. They are close to Iqaluit or Resolute Bay. And there is a damaged part. What if out in the isolated area, we manufacture the damaged part on board of a ship and the ship can just continue working? The benefits of practicing metal 3D printing for repair and maintenance of the ships that Canada is making right now is immense. I'm sure you've heard of the BC port strike. Uh, and one mm-hmm. of their primary concerns was automation. Do you right. think this would factor under automation and affect their job as port workers? Or would it be more of a support system to help alleviate the stress of their daily operations? So additive manufacturing and a smart robot uh, for the marine and shipbuilding and the whole port support systems, initially, they will be something to help the port uh, you know, personnel, for sure. But the idea of using 3D printers and advanced robots and AI, eventually, eventually, I'm talking long time from now, long time from now, will actually, uh, you know, affect the labor uh, in uh, in that market. Yes, I, I envision that. How but so? We, um, because... At some point, uh, we will see that uh, with the emergence of robots and 3D printers, things can be all automated, and 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 uh, they are coming. However, we humans, we've been practicing casting for a very, very long time. We have been doing this for more than 5,000 years, and now we are here. However, with 3D printing, that's not the case. We have been starting to discuss this concept in the 80s. It died down in the early 2000s. It came back alive in the 2010s. And now it's just booming. These new physical systems, smart robots or metal 3D printers, these are really very young still. We need a lot of research and development to actually understand completely what is going on and completely understand their limitations, completely understand their place and locations beside other technologies. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where we can 3D print an entire ship? Um, I envision right now that, um, for example, we can 3D print uh, these uh, modular houses or, uh, you know, some parts of the society right now. Those same concepts, they can be actually used for 3D printing uh, ship parts, uh, and they're coming as well, but we are far from them. Those technologies are developing, 
but they take time actually to completely be um, be alive in the next decade. It's an interesting concept. That's our producer, Bianca Rego, speaking with Dr. Momadi, Mosin Momadi, uh, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the University of New Brunswick, about the issue of printing, uh, 3D printing ship parts and using that for ship maintenance. Boy, imagine if they could do that, how much better that would be for, say, BC Ferries, right? If we could get something like that done. This is Mornings with Simi. Now you can really tell that things have changed when it comes to landscaping here on the South Coast because now it's becoming more and more popular to have what's known as an ugly lawn. It wasn't that long ago when we considered a brown, dry lawn to be a bad thing, right? A sign of neglect even. Not anymore. Now you could be rewarded for it. Now you could win a contest for it. And these are becoming popular. There's a handful of uh, different cities around you know, the lower mainland that are actually having contests to promote people to conserve water and have an ugly lawn. You've got Port Coquitlam, Abbotsford, Mission are doing this, and Chilliwack is doing it as well. And Ken Popov, the mayor of Chilliwack, joins us now to talk about that. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi, and happy Friday. Happy Friday to you too. So tell me, why did Chilliwack decide to do this? Well, it's, it's you know, like a fun way to, to bring, you know, that to a forefront, just like your 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 beginning dialogue there is is you know our water is precious and and just let your lawn go brown it it will come back, so we decided to just to poke some fun at it and 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 attach a a you know like a price to it and uh, um, I believe it's working I'm not sure uh, the contest is going to close at the end of or mid October so. We shall see how that works out. Right, you got to give t- got to give people time to brown up their lawn, right? You got to Ab- absolutely, <laughs> so absolutely. First you place, know, first place is a hundred and fifty dollar Visa gift card. Second place is a one hundred dollar gift card. Third is a fifty dollar gift card. Who's going to judge this? Well, I I think I might be a part of that. I I'm, I'm not sure that hasn't been solidified yet, but. Uh, uh, it's going to be tough. You know, I drive, you know, through my town a lot. And and I have to admit, I do see some ugly lawns, but, uh, uh, you know, all for the right reason. And I think Mayor, Mayor Brody hit the nail on the head. He says, don't waste our precious water on our lawn. And it just made, you know, perfect sense to me what he said. So uh, it's, it's you know, our water is precious. And, and, and to water the lawn... Uh, it will come back in the fall once the rainy season hits, but uh, we just wanted to have some fun with it. Do you think that people are getting that message, Mayor Popov? Like, are more people deciding that, yeah, I don't need a green lawn? Well, funny you say that. Like I said, I do drive through my community a lot, and I still see a lot of green lawns. And, and uh, um, we don't have a, a, you know, like a lawn cop or a watering cop because we just don't have the capacity. So, we just want people, you know, to do the right thing. Uh, uh, and, and if we all chip in and, and follow along with the strategy, we will preserve our, our precious water. So eh, we'll have to wait and see at the end of it. Well, this is a good way to publicize it for sure. So were people, do you think, not paying attention to watering restrictions? Uh, I think there are some that that just. Uh, <laughs> are you tr- you're trying to be very laundry. diplomatic I here? I, I, I have to be careful what I say here. You know, I don't want to make make people mad. But again, just if everybody just does their part, you know, we will preserve our water, which is very precious. Now, the city would also like people to explore some other landscaping options too. Is that right? 
Well, I, I believe it was a, the city of Kamloops ha, has really got into a, a you know, like a different strategy, you know, on, on new landscaping for sure. And, and, you know, artificial turf, which stays green all year long and, and it looks pretty good. The type of varieties is, is, is quite amazing. Um, I'm not sure, you know, in the Valley, because it's, it's, you know, this heat wave is, is, it, it's not unprecedented. We've, the last one was 2015 where we had to really go into a, you know, like a different stages of water conservation. But, uh, I, I feel people are, 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 you know, changing their, their, planting habits i know i do i'm I, you know i'm an avid gardener and and you have to plant plants that use less water and still look good in your garden so it's just a new new way to look at things right so what's it been like in chilliwack then in terms of water conservation is this something that's been on your mind there well it's like what i said 2015 was the last time that we really had to have a look at it uh we are are into stage four of our our uh water conservation strategy where uh, you can water your lawn once a week. We don't want you to be washing your cars or your boats or anything aesthetic. Uh, you can still water your garden, your flower beds, that sort of thing by hand. So it's, it's just something that we're really, really monitoring because it's, it's like I say, back in 2015 was the last time that we had to Im, Im, impose these type of strategies, but it's all for the best. It's to preserve our water. That is true. All for the best. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the call. Good luck. Enjoy your day. You too. That is Ken Popoff, the mayor of Chilliwack. So Chilliwack, uh, one of the communities, there's a handful of them around Metro Vancouver who have launched an ugly lawn contest. Uh, And this is a a way to encourage people to essentially not use water on their lawn. Uh, And they're trying to incentivize people too. So there's three prizes. First place is a $150 Visa gift card. Second place is a $100 gift card. And third is a $50 gift card. That's pretty good, right? where all you have to do is just not water your lawn. So they want people to let the lawn go dormant for the summer. And then they're also encouraged to explore other, you know, alternative landscaping options, plant a vegetable garden, create a rock garden, something like that. Something that essentially doesn't require water, right? So this is going to run through until September the 30th, they said. So they have to receive the picture of your lawn by October the 13th in order to be considered for the prizes. Now, Port Coquitlam is doing this as well. Mission is doing this. Abbotsford is doing this. It's a great idea to encourage people to not water their lawn. They don't have to do that. I think Mayor Popov was being a little diplomatic there when he was saying that, yeah, he might see some people out there with, you know, still having the green lawns. I think personally, like people are starting to slowly get that message. I would love to hear what it's like in your neighborhood too. Now, right now we are at stage two watering restrictions, and that means no lawn watering at all. You do not water the grass. You can hand water your vegetable garden, your trees, uh, your flowers, that kind of thing. That can continue, but no lawn watering at all. And I know because I've gotten some emails from people that you see in your neighborhood, maybe it's a condo building or maybe, you know, whatever. You're seeing people still do this. The message is not getting through. We heard this week City of Vancouver has been handing out lots of tickets for this, thousands of potential dollars in fines. Hopefully people will pay them. But what about where you are, where you live? Are you seeing people still do the watering that they're not supposed to be doing? Would you like to see a crackdown on that? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, you know what that means. Time for us to check in and find out how our Vancouver Whitecaps are doing. Coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Vanny Sartini, joins us now. Good morning, Coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. I know you're getting ready to eat a lot of pizza, right? Because the team's going to be hitting the road soon. Yeah, yeah. We we have a kind of a week off in the sense that we don't play this week. We'll play home against San Jose on the 20th, and then after that, seven games in a row on the road. Oof, that's a lot. Okay, because yeah. like we're giving away tickets all this week for this San Jose game because that's when the real that's back to MLS play, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. The the league is gonna uh, start again on that week, and there are twelve games remaining. We are in a playoff position, so it's kind of a of like a, of the final uh, the final mile, the 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 home stretch. Yes. But even 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 though we're gonna go away for seven games in a row, but uh, um, we 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 need results and we need fans. So like, uh, thank you for for bringing more fans on the. On the <laughs> well, we'll do everything we can because, like, I know you're in seventh <laughs> spot there in the Western Conference, but you really like you want to solidify it, right? And with twelve games left, like, there a lot can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were seventh, but uh, we most of the team they played I, uh, either one or two games more than us. So potentially, uh, with a win against San Jose, we could go even on the on immediately on fifth place. So that's uh, uh, I would say exciting times. And uh, again, as you said before, because we have uh, that stretch of game away, the points here at home are even more important than usual. Yeah, let's talk about the League's Cup play, which has been going on for the last few weeks. I mean, the team did pretty well. You must be happy with their performance. Yeah, the performance were really good. We we beat uh, Los Angeles, and we, we we only lost on penalties against, uh, uh, I would say, a Mexican giant like Tigres that uh, if, we, um, if we think about, we probably deserve to win. We, we played well. We performed very well, and... Uh, it was only on penalty that uh, that we lost. We make one. We made one one in the, in regular time play. So it's uh, it's something that make us, uh, I would say, very very confident for the for the future. And uh, we need to to build from there. Okay. So when you say build from there, and you've got a couple of recent additions, right? That your new arrivals yes. have come. Yes. Yes. And that that's gonna help. We we signed two Canadian uh, national team players. Uh, Richie Laria and, and Sema de Kube that uh, for sure going to help uh, even immediately against San Jose. They, they will probably be part of the team. They are uh, um, they can have an immediate impact uh, on on the team. They are quality players, experienced player, player that won both domestically and then they play with the national team. So they will help us also to. I would say to make the next steps in terms of uh, maturity and experience, uh, especially because we have to play a lot of games away. Okay, yeah, a lot of games away. So good, teams ready for this? Yeah, 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 I think so. Uh, I think so. So we, we're, we're working well. We, we're, we're ready to go. Uh, we're, we're also all excited to go away and because everyone is telling us, ah, it's going to be so hard, so hard, so hard. And so it's uh, it's even more... Uh, it, it gives us even an extra kick of uh, to, to show everyone that okay, it's gonna be hard, but but, but we're gonna make it. And as you said at the beginning, I'm I'm excited to to discover even new pizza places, so it's okay. <laughs> and I'm excited <laughs> to hear about it when you're on the road. Listen, coach, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, let's get an update now on the situation in Maui. Now, we know the death toll is at least 55. It's expected to go much higher in the devastating aftermath of those wildfires on Maui. Uh, In fact, rescue officials there have said right now the death toll pretty much only consists of the bodies that they have come across. They haven't even started searching the rubble yet or looking in houses uh, to see the people that they perhaps missed. And it's really hard to know exactly what's happening there because on that part of the island where the fires happen, the Lahaina area, there is no cell service. There is no power. There is no water. Everything has been knocked out in that area. But we do know it will likely be the worst national natural disaster in Hawaii history. That's according to the governor. Rebuilding is going to take years. And the message that they are sending to the public, and I think it's very important for people here to hear, is that don't come to Maui. They said that we would like, if you have plans to go to Maui, they would like you to cancel your trip. That was not the time, they said, to visit Maui. Not now, not for the next month, they, at least. Until they say they can welcome visitors again, like it really, they, they're putting the brakes on that. They just don't have the ability uh, to look after tourists right now. They're even asking residents in Lahaina not to return to try to find out what happened to their homes at this time. They've got shelters filled to overflowing, people sleeping at the airport. Flights are continuing to get people off the island. In fact, this morning out at YVR, two flights have arrived from Maui bringing more Canadians home home and airlines that regularly fly in like Alaska Airlines are also sending in rescue supplies while bringing people uh, back out to the mainland. Now, Hawaii is near and dear to a lot of people. It's near and dear to my family. We've been going often uh, over the last 20 years. We have a destination wedding in our family coming up in Hawaii, not on Maui, but in Hawaii in the next couple of months. And as part of that process, kind of working through how can we, you know, give a nod to local businesses and make sure we support local businesses. Um, you know, I, I had been talking to some local businesses about, oh, what can we use as part of this wedding? Maybe some wedding favors. And I had come across a hot sauce company called Honolulu Hot Sauce. And looks amazing, tastes amazing. I managed to sample some. It was phenomenal. I'd been communicating with the owner of this hot sauce company. And he was the first person I actually thought of when I heard about the fires because I, I know his business was on Maui and we had been talking back and forth about logistics. And then I saw him uh, quoted, I saw him on CNN. I saw him quoted in the New York Times. Uh, he had lost everything, barely managed to get out of the house. He got his, he's got his dog, he's got his passport. That's pretty much it. Now, we managed to get a hold of him a few hours ago. Remember, it's quite a different time. So it's three hours behind us there in, in Hawaii. Uh, did get a hold of him. His name is Cole Millington. He, is, he lived right in Lahaina, barely managed to make it out. Here's what he told us. Cole, thanks for being here with us this morning. First of all, can you tell me what is the situation like where you are right now? Um, I'm actually, I'm taking refuge on a family farm in Waihei, um, on the other side of Maui with about 15 of my friends who are Westside residents. Um, it's been an extremely hectic and scary couple of days and it's actually, um, the fires are out, but the, um, the situation is pretty scary because of looting and the things that happen after natural disasters. Um, I can kind of explain what happened and how it came to this point though. Yeah. Um, about 4 p.m. on August 8th, I saw a lot of black smoke from the uh, coming from the back of my house, and I told my roommates, I said, hey, that, that looks like a lot of smoke. Um, maybe we should think about packing some go bags 
and getting ready to leave. And within 10, 15 minutes, we were sprinting downstairs into the cars and peeling out of the driveway as fast as we could. Um, the entire street was smoky and there were flames coming. Um, there was no warning. We had such a short amount of time before, I mean, the entire town was engulfed. Um, as I was driving out of my driveway, telephone wires and poles are on the ground. Trees are over. Um, we had 90 mile an hour winds with no rain and severe drought conditions. So it, it turned into like a hurricane of fire. Um, oh my gosh. Well, so what's left yeah. of all that? Is, is there, is your neighborhood just, is it gone? The running theme or, or saying has been Lahaina is gone. Um, nothing is left. My house is gone. My business is gone. Um, I got out with my dog, my passport, and my truck, and that's it. Um, and was that the same for the entire, everyone else in your neighborhood? The entire town is leveled. Um, there's maybe a couple standing buildings Um you know, between dozens and dozens of neighborhoods. I think right now, um, my up-to-date estimate, or not estimate, but what I've heard from officials is that there's 56 confirmed fatalities and over 271 structure fires, um, complete total loss structure fires. Um, my friends who are stuck on the west side are completely out of power. They have no water. They have very limited food. Um, they have no cell phone service, so no way to contact us. Um, so it's really hard to figure out what they need and where they need it. And um, there's apparently reports right now of looting starting, of people going over to the houses that haven't burned and trying to take as much as they can, and people fighting for supplies. Is um, there help there? Like, I, I guess it's hard to know because you, you can't even get into contact. Like, how did you get out? Um, I, I was I live on the south side of Lahaina Town, so we were lucky enough to get on the the one single road that leads out of town. It's a 25-minute drive, 30-minute drive from Lahaina to the center of the island. It took us over three hours to get um, to the center of the island. It was standstill traffic. There was absolutely no evacuation notices and emergency help. I didn't see a single police officer anywhere. Um, it was pure chaos, and it still is. Um, there's not a lot of government help right now at all, I want to say. Um, I haven't seen any National Guard. I haven't seen any Navy I heard the Coast Guard was helping people who ran into the water to avoid being burned alive that night. And that's all I heard um, from Coast Guard help. Um, we are feeling like we're kind of neglected and abandoned here by the government and the, the larger forces that be that can really help. But um, the community on Maui is so unbelievably strong that they're coming together in so many different ways to try and help um, deliver supplies. People are driving through the burning town to deliver supplies to people who are stuck over there. Um, people are doing whatever they can. I started a GoFundMe yesterday. That's at $45,000. Um, so everyone's doing whatever they can in whatever way they can help. I did um, notice... this isn't going to be... I did notice oh, yesterday, yeah. I'm sorry to say, that I, uh, that um, the Hawaii Community Foundation has launched a Maui Strong fundraiser as well and you couldn't even get on the website yesterday because of so much traffic so i think the will to help is there but cole is it just the execution yeah. is it because it is an isolated like it's hard to get those resources to maui um it there isn't really a, a plan of disaster for this you know there's five or i mean there's there's dozens of nonprofit organizations who are trying to figure out how to help um, maui rapid response is doing a phenomenal job right now they're trying to condense 
the needs of the island and the offers of help of the island and people anywhere. If you're in Vancouver, if you're in Massachusetts and Florida and wherever you are, um, you can go to Maui Rapid Response and they have a sheet and they're taking all information of people who are offering help or people who need help and what they need. And they're doing a phenomenal job of trying to condense and make this less chaotic. Um, Cole, will you be able to stay? Will you be able to rebuild? I know you had a pretty young, thriving company. What will you do? Yeah. Um, my, my house and, and my business are completely gone. I don't have anything to my name right now. Um, so my focus isn't necessarily on my business. My focus is on helping my community and trying to figure out how we can get this together. Uh, my long-term plan on Maui, I'm not sure because I don't know if Maui is sure how it's going to handle this. Um, it's going to be months to rebuild. If not, I mean, it's going to be years, really. Um, my plan though is be here boots on the ground for the next couple months and do everything I can to help my friends and my family and, and everyone I care about try and try and get through this. Um, I would feel terrible if I just left right now. What do you want people to know about what's going on? Like, how can we help? Um, if you have money that you can donate, there's a lot of good funds. Red Cross right now is doing on the ground disaster work. Maui Rapid Response um, is working with Hawaii Community, Hawaii uh, Maui Strong Community Fund that you brought up. Um, there's a couple like that. I have a GoFundMe that um, I just started working with the Relief Foundation, um, who has worked in the Japan earthquake, the Haiti disaster, Houston disaster, all these big things, and they're helping me navigate how I can make sure these funds are allocated as efficiently and as effectively as possible without being taxed, and none of it is going to be personally. Um, if you cannot donate money, clothing drives are going to be huge in the next couple months, so think about that. If you have you know, a community of people that want to help, you know, we're going to need clothes and bedding, and we're going to need stuff like that. Um, toiletries, baby food, um, women's menstrual stuff. Um, there's... It's it's very chaotic at this very moment how you can directly help, but Maui's going to need so much help over the next couple months. Um, thousands, tens of thousands, I think, at this point are homeless and displaced, um, and they lost generational homes and land. And it's, um, Lahaina is the heart of Maui for the economy. A lot of people all over the island work over there, so it's um, it's going to be really difficult, and um, it's going to be hard to navigate, but. We're going to do our best. Well, listen, Cole, I wish you all the best. Keep in touch. Let us know how we can help, okay? Yeah, 100%. Thank you. Thank you.